I'm Lee Christian, I'm here with Anna Brosius, and this is the second of our three-part series on podcasts um, to inform parents and other interested parties about the Aret Micro School in the Vale Valley. And uh, last time we talked about the philosophy of these schools. This time we're going to cover the Course of Study podcast. Hi, Anna, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you, Lee. Okay, good. Well, I think one of the things that most people want to know what are the academic goals that these schools prioritize? Well, there are three primary academic goals embedded in the Christian classical approach. The first is to teach students to attend. The second is to teach students the tools of learning that are foundational to all disciplines. These tools are the seven liberating arts of the trivium and quadrivium, which are probably new words, but um, we'll go into that a little bit further. Um, third, we teach toward mastery so that students have mastered the foundational disciplines of the trivium and are well on their way to mastering the quadrivium by the time they enter high school. This prepares them for a lifetime of higher academic pursuits. Okay, so yeah, we'll probably have to clarify some of those terms, but that's fine. Can you go into a little bit more detail on these goals? Sure. Um, let's start with attention. If students can't focus or pay attention, they can't learn. Attention is a foundational prerequisite to learning. When we teach students to discipline their minds to pay attention, focus, and dig deeply, without growing tired or bored, they're prepared to thrive academically. Interestingly, there are numerous tools that have been developed and then largely ignored that cultivate attention. The most powerful of these tools is narration. Narration includes telling back what you have heard or seen, it is foundational in the lower grades and is practiced daily in these schools and in classical schools. Well, actually, narration is not necessarily practiced in all classical schools, but it's well known. Um, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about narration, you can look up Karen Glass's book, Know and Tell, and A Classical Guide to Narration by Jason Barney. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, classical teachers talk a lot about the seven liberal arts. Can you go into detail on those? Um, the seven liberal arts are nothing new. They're based on the complementary arts that Plato in his Republic presented as the essential skills and fields of knowledge required by free, well-educated citizens. The trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric focuses on understanding and interpreting signs, ordering what we know and say, and making decisions in community. These, the, the arts of the trivium are the humane arts. They fully take into consideration what a human being is. The quadrivium is composed of arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. And those terms mean a, a little bit different things now than they did when they were originally coined. But um, essentially, the quadrivium focuses on understanding the physical aspects of God's creation, or how things work together and harmonize within the created universe. Okay. What does focusing on these foundational arts mean in the context of the course of study? It means that students will be taught to read and understand the highest levels of academic and literary writing. It means that they will have mastered the grammar, syntax, and elocutionary tools that ensure excellent formal and informal speaking and writing by the time they graduate from these schools. Furthermore, they won't 
just be able to solve mathematical equations, but they'll understand arithmetic, geometry, and music conceptually, and know how to use the tools and experiences that they've had to solve problems they've never even encountered before. By really focusing on the foundations of education, the, those foundations that prepare them, but don't drown them in a shallow flood of seemingly disconnected information, we can set aside the stress of feeling like we need to cover a multitude of subjects. I think recognizing the foundational studies that prepare a student for any specialization and focusing on those studies creates an environment that is restful and peaceful for the teachers as well as the students. I, I don't think I could stress enough how refreshing it is to know that our goal is to lay a foundation on truth, goodness, and beauty in the context of a base of knowledge that students can actually master. With that goal in mind, we can set aside all the hurry and the flurry of our modern schools with all of the extraneous activities and shape our days into a humane rhythm of hard work, play, good food, deep conversation, and delight in God's creation. You know, Anna, one of the things that is most appealing to me uh, might be the textbooks that are used uh, or the curriculum um, that will be used in these schools. Can you amplify that a little bit? Yeah, I will. Um, first and foremost, the primary textbooks used in the schools will be the great books from the classical canon, as well as what um, Charlotte Mason and, and classical communities as well um, designate as living books. This means that the greatest written works of all time and the works of those who have put their hearts into their writing are the foundation of the curriculum instead of textbooks. Um, as we, you know, the, the typical textbook of today is written for profit um, and they're dry and they're disjointed. So we, we really do our best to avoid those, those types of textbooks, which is surprisingly easy to do because um, there are some really amazing, really excellent works that are written by um, people who really love their subjects. So the classical approach is um, a liter literature-rich approach. Teachers will be reading to students, and students will be reading to themselves and each other on a daily basis. So there's a lot, there's a lot of literature that goes into this. Um, to give a general picture of the foundational texts that form the core of the curriculum, I'm just going to list a couple of, a few of the authors and the books that we'll be diving into as a school and individually. Um, the Bible is the primary source. Homer, Dante, Shakespeare, Austin, Dickens, MacDonald, Lewis, Tolkien, Twain, Alcott, Augustine, Boethius, Fables, and then we have the folk tales and the fairy tales that are foundational as well. And, you know, that's a great list. I personally probably didn't read most of those until I was in college. There's some legitimacy to that. Some of them are, you know, we're not going to be having our third graders reading Boethius, but, you know, they're definitely by, high, by middle school or high school, our students will be prepared. They are prepared to read these really difficult, what we would term really difficult texts. And a lot of times we just, you know, we just set them aside in our modern realm because they're just too difficult, they're too hard to understand. But the, um, the good books that we read in the lower grades prepare the students to really understand and dig into the great books later. You know, it seems like the rule of the schools is to begin with and focus on the best. Yeah, I agree with you. That is entirely it. 
this, this approach recognizes that there's a profound relationship between all of the subjects and that there is an ordering principle behind those relationships. That ordering principle is Jesus Christ. The logos are center of everything. And that's, you know, as we were saying, as students wrestle with the complexity of the greatest authors and literary works, they gain insight, not just into human nature and their own nature and who they are, but also the nature of their creator. They develop their ability to work through the complexities of difficult and counterintuitive writing styles as well. So, you know, through stories and great writers, we prepare them for the complex and difficult um, subjects and studies, and, and even for the philosophical studies of the, the upper grades, typically by high school. And a lot of times, you know, the students in high school in the classical tradition who are studying in the classical tradition are prepared for um, those texts that we, we generally say for university studies, if we ever even get to them at all. Yeah, yeah. So that gives us an idea of the foundational texts, philosophy and literature. I think a lot of people want to know, what about science and math? Yes, they do. So um, in these schools, the science education is divided into three distinct phases. And the first phase, which is really the primary grades up to about what would be fifth grade, that first phase is 100% hands-on for the students. And to a large extent, hands-off for the teacher. Through nature study, open-minded experimentation, and what John D. Mays in his book, From Wonder to Mastery, describes as deeper nature experiences um, that include farm, wildland, camping, field trips, you know, things like that, out, lots of time spent in the outdoors, the students gain experiential understanding. This allows students opportunities to, to explore at their own level and really, really wonder before we give them answers. Um, we lay a foundation in this way for future scientific inquiry based on a true interest and an innate or kind of almost, you know, almost common sense understanding where they, they just sort of know things. Um, an example of this would be constructing storm shelters during their nature study time. Um, by doing this, students gain understanding of structural integrity. They can figure out physical laws and what works and what doesn't work. They learn about materials and what materials work for certain things and why they work and why they don't work without even really realizing that they're learning, per se. Basically, the, the foundational goal at this first stage of the science education is to allow the students plenty of room to wander and marvel in the natural world, um, specifically without giving them pat or overly complex answers that shut down their natural in interest. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've heard teachers shut down the interest of a student by giving them some overly scientific explanation, like you know, they'll say, what is a rainbow? And instead of letting them wander at a rainbow, they sit there and try to explain, well, it's the sun reflecting off the drops of... The kids don't need to know that. You can play with the idea before you have to give them the science behind sure, it. Sure, sure. You say that the second phase of the course of study in science focuses on reading the stories and books of great scientists throughout history, something I never did in my educational background. I think that's something that's left out, and I think it's really important because the way that I was taught science was that it was like, this is it. This is the answer. This is the end all. Here it is. Here's science in this textbook, and now you have it. And I think that's really, um, that, that's, and that's unfair. It's not true. And it's a disadvantage to students 
who um, are not taught through the ideas of exploration. I mean, you know, these scientists were exploring. They weren't, you know, they didn't just figure this out because it was the obvious answer. They spent a lot of time really digging into it and learning their stories really helps students to embrace science on a different level. Okay. What about the third phase? So the third phase doesn't, doesn't begin until upper middle school to high school, and, and that phase is going to be focused on the mastery of, of the more um, specific scientific disciplines. Obviously, the first thing that students have to master are arithmetic, geometry, astronomy. If, if they haven't mastered those, like the basics of the mathematical principles behind science, they can't really master any of the, the future scientific studies. If you don't know math, you can't really study biology and chemistry or physics or even geology. geology I mean, sure. we, we really can't. I remember slogging through chemistry and physics. And, you know, I, I, wish, I wish that foundation had been there for me. I think it's critical. I really do. I mean, I don't think that there's the, the possibility of really um, understanding the, the upper level science only comes with that foundation in, you know, the mathematicals studies, or the studies of, I guess, of God's creation. What about our teachers that, that we've identified? Um, as how, far as what they, oh. Yeah, how, um, how, how competent would they be to teach these subjects? So we have some incredible potential teachers in the sciences, and we have some incredible potential teachers just within our community. And that's one of the things that, that these schools do, is we're going to embrace the the strengths of the parents who have things to offer and of, of the teachers. But we do actually have some teachers who um, really have a deep knowledge of science and are able to share that with the students. Okay, so now we're going to get down to brass tacks. What about <laughs> math? This is one of the biggest concerns of our parents right now. Yeah, um, I definitely recognize the concerns of parents in this realm, and I've been trying to figure it out. Um, there's so much anxiety surrounding math education. Um, and I think I, I, I've come to the conclusion that one of the biggest drivers of this concern is that many parents don't feel like they received a really good math education. Amen. Mm -hmm. They're concerned. And, and furthermore, like on top of that, they're concerned that their children aren't going to either. And they watch their children struggle and that causes them distress because they can't really help them. And so um, I would really love to be able to put those fears to rest. I love math, and I absolutely love teaching math. And there are tools and resources that make teaching and learning math a joy rather than a scary burden. Um, interestingly, the strategies, materials, and approaches that we have lined up for the Arat schools are based on foundations that are proving to be incredibly effective in teaching mathematics in the mainstream education realm. So they're, they're things that have been researched and there's a lot of data that supports a lot of the, the ideas that we're embracing. But beneath and before all of those research-based tools lies the real reason that we teach the way we do. Lee, what would you say the purpose of math education is or should be? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that, that you know, we, we, we need to understand the basics of mathematics. It's kind of, it's kind of the music of the spheres. Mm -hmm. and, when we start with that premise, um, everything else seems to fall in line. I, I remember my math education being so disjointed. Mm. And um, some kids in the class got it right away, and most of the rest of the class struggled, including me. 
And um, I would love to see a different approach. Yeah, me too. Galileo said, philosophy is written in this grand book, the universe, which stands continually open to our gaze. But the book cannot be understood unless one first learns to comprehend the language and read the letters in which it is composed. It is written in the language of mathematics, and its, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Without these, one wanders around in a dark labyrinth. Wow. The biggest difference between the Arendt School's approach to math and the generally accepted approach is the ultimate goal. We are not focused on being able to balance a checkbook, avoid Ponzi schemes, um, or get a high-paying job. Although these can be, they can be side effects of a great mathematical education, but they're not the goal. Rather, our goal is to orient our students toward the truth and beauty of God's creation. When our focus is on the beauty of math, we can revel with our students in the wonder of mathematical discovery and teach joyfully. So, I mean, the practical side of this way of teaching is a multifaceted approach to math education. When we recognize that every student is able to grasp the concepts and that there are a variety of ways to present them so that the different minds can really grasp them, we have a huge advantage over most cut-and-dried approaches to mathematics. So in this approach, we use games, we use manipulatives, um, we use open questions. We, we definitely use friendly competition and a lot of one-on-one -on -one teaching to guide students toward mastery. And, and mastery is really the key, isn't it? It is. I mean, it, if you don't master the foundational concepts, you really can't move forward. I mean, I think that, that math, the way that we educate in math, we get lucky because some, somehow the students are able to figure out the base, the foundations, later on. I mean, because the human mind is very powerful. But, I mean, ideally, they don't have to struggle with that. They, they have it from the beginning. Sure, right? sure. Yeah. You, you noticed, I noticed that you uh, had referenced a book by Denise Gaskins. Can you talk about that for a minute? So I really love Denise Gaskins. She wrote a book called Let's Play Math. She also has a website. I think it's also called Let's Play Math. I'm not 100% sure on the name of her website. But she really digs into the importance of playing with math, playing with the concepts, playing games, talking about math, you know, in your everyday conversations throughout the school day and so forth. You're not just being handed an iPad and said, you know, go through these exercises. Or even a sheet of paper that is, you know, full of a, a bunch of exercises. And again, the research doesn't support that, you know, it, what we know about how the human mind learns math doesn't support the way that we're teaching math at all. Um, we, we really thrive on open-ended questions, trying to figure things out, looking for, the, you know, looking for the patterns. That's a huge part of this approach to math, is, is really recognizing math as, a, as this world of patterns and, um, and relationships. Nice. Well, how would, you, how would you wrap up this second podcast, Anna? Um, well, obviously we could talk for hours about each of the items that we've been touching on. Knowledge and understanding are as essential to the human mind as food is to the human body. I think I, I, that is one thing that I would really like to stress, is that 
students shouldn't hate learning because it's what they need. It's, we all want it. We all want to know. You, know you, you mentioned one of the goals is attendance. And I can see how kids would relish going to school every morning with this, this format. Absolutely. I mean, when, you, when your mind is being fed what, what it longs for, I mean, what it's hungry for, it really changes your perspective on what you're doing. So, you know, they may not like broccoli the first time they're exposed to it, but we keep putting it on their plate anyway. And there's, there's an element of that that go, that's part of this education as well. It's not just feeding them, you know, the candy or the things that they want, but feeding them good, solid food that they want to come back to day after day. Well, this is excellent, Anna. I think the second podcast has taught us a lot. I'm looking really forward to the third one. Thank you, Lee.